Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Hi, this is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth Podcast once again. We're happy to have you join us with our topic today, 24 Essential Practice Planning Issues. And we have our industry expert on this, Larry Chatterley, retired from CTC Associates. Larry, while with his company, uh, their company was involved in over 2,000 practice transition uh, projects and uh, he's had a chance to uh, assist a lot of practitioners, has a lot of experience. He's been kind of a mentor for me and Larry, I really appreciate you sharing with us today. You bet. Pleasure being here, Bob. Well, uh, you know, for uh, dentists who are in the fourth quarter of their career, at some time, at some point in that uh, period, they feel a need for change. And uh they may want to uh, improve staff relations, find relief from stress of managing a private practice or any one of a number of reasons to uh, make a change. So through proper planning, the goal of course is to preserve and enhance the value of a practice and then learn to avoid making the critical mistakes that unfortunately some other people have made, which has, has led to emotional disaster and financial disaster. Uh, we trust that this podcast series will assist you in charting your course and will lead to achieving your personal and professional goals. Our first topic for the day is considerations for planning the transition of my practice to new ownership. Larry, maybe, you know, it's a big, big topic and you could talk for maybe a day on this one question, but we're going to limit it to less than a day. <laughs> and that is, what are my transition options if I'm a, a late career dentist? Good question. Well, there's there's numerous different options. We'll talk about four of the more popular ones that we've seen over the years. <clears throat> the first one is probably the most common one we see is a seller uh, walkaway option. That's where the practice is uh, sold and essentially the seller uh, discontinues practicing uh, after the acquisition of the practice by a buyer. There's some pros and cons to this. Probably the the benefit to the uh, both parties is that they can kind of work, that the buyer can run his practice the way he wants, and the seller, hit, the benefit to him is he doesn't have to worry about getting up in the morning and going to the office anymore. But then again, the flip side, the drawback is some sellers don't really want to just cease practicing after they sell. <clears throat> so in those cases, the, they want to do a sell work back, and that is a common transition we've used over the years. And that's where they, they sell the practice and then work back as an associate part-time for the buyer. But let me tell you some 
some caveats here. Anytime there is a seller work back, there's some issues that need to be addressed. Number one is, does the practice have excess capacity when it relates to both cash flow and patient flow? And second, can the facility accommodate two doctors working under the same roof? Lately, we've seen over the last probably 20 years where seller workbacks have not been as common as we used to see them, namely because there wasn't the excess capacity that was in the, in the practice. And second, they may only have three or four ops, which made it difficult for the seller to come in and work unless he worked maybe just a day a week. But usually the number one issue we've normally seen is practices are, particularly from the operative side, are only booked out maybe one to two weeks. And if they're only booked out that much, and, and let's say they're getting five or 10 or 15 new patients a month, that's going to be pretty hard pressed for both parties to work in their practice, namely from uh, having a full schedule. We typically tell the seller, if he desires to work back part-time, that the schedule for the buyer is filled first and his second. If for any reason the seller's or the buyer's schedule is not full, then most likely the seller won't be working there anymore. This is not a personal issue. It's a financial capacity issue. If the, if the buyer's financial capacity is hindered or, or stripped away, then he has a difficult honoring his commitments, particularly to the, the debt of the acquisition and his school debt and his other personal expenses. So with that in mind, that is a viable option. But here again, we have to take into account how the dynamics of the practice and can it accommodate two doctors. Another third option, <clears throat> which works well, is a deferred cell work back. And that is where the person coming in works as an associate. And many times the buyer prefers that so they can get their speed and, and up, to, up to par with the seller and the clinical skill set and to build rapport with patients and with the staff. So it allows maybe a year or two lead time, but everything is, is actually in writing right on the onset, the price and terms and everything. And so they start out with an associate agreement leading to a buyout agreement, maybe one to two years later. This sometimes allows the practice to grow to a point where sometimes the seller can work back part-time. But here again, we have to take in consideration, will this work? Maybe if there's that capacity for growth in the practice and, is, and does they have the facility to accommodate another dentist. Now, keep in mind this particular thing, situation is I tell sellers that if they don't cut back immediately, the buyer probably won't make it uh, financially. What we're seeing, Bob, now is many, most of the graduates coming out of school now are, have a huge amount of school debt, three to 500000 And uh, just addressing the debt and their personal expenses, they got to come out of the chute making a minimum, usually 10000 plus more a month gross revenue. And that's just to stay afloat. If the seller can't, if he cannot afford a cutback in his personal revenue by 10000 then it's going to be a pretty difficult situation to bring someone into the practice. So here again, the seller needs to consider his financial overall well-being and where he stands and can he afford that cutback. Because if he can, the buyer won't be able to make it uh, coming out of the chute. So... And we'll talk about that later about financial capacity. But anyway, it's important that that, that 
those things get addressed on the onset because if they don't and you bring an associate in, it could have some problems. I, the uh, field of dream type, uh, you've heard that uh, movie, that we don't see that as much in practice as we saw in the 80s and 90s. There was a much more a plethora of patient base and we didn't have in, many insurance back then, PPOs, there were not very much. And so typically the practices just would grow. If there was another doc in the practice, the production would go up. But since the turn of the century, we haven't seen that because the amount of new dentists graduating is considerably higher than before. And with the infusion of more insurance programs, it's made it, made it tighter on the cash flow. So the third option is a, a deferred uh, buy-in. And that's where someone who whose horizon maybe spent five to 10 years out. They really want to kind of practice for maybe up to 10 years, but um, they're getting tired of kind of being the captain of the ship. And, and so in that situation, uh, they bring associate leading to a buy-in versus a buy-out. So uh, with the associate leading to a buy-in, they, they typically form a partnership after a couple of years, and then they work together another five to 10 years. And then, when the seller is ready to retire, they sell the second half to the buyer. Usually at that time, the buyer brings on another person because he can't, he or she can't take the load of the whole practice at that point. Uh, we see those, but here again, they're not as common as we used to see 20 plus years ago. They're a little trickier because the it's a different mindset to be a co-captain. Uh, the problem we've seen is a lot of solo dentists have or how do you say they're used to kind of controlling the way things run and bringing someone in and sharing that co-ownership is difficult. And so therefore some people are just not meant to uh, be in partnerships, not to say that that is, uh, is wrong by no means. It's just that they're not geared to bring someone in and share that responsibility because sometimes that creates some stress. Um, I probably should, okay. Um, I might make a side note here. Any partnership that we've ever done, if a spouse was involved, works in the practice in any fashion, the divorce rate in that partnership is about 90%. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so that's, that's a shame. Yeah, there's there, we could spend quite a bit reasons why for that, but it, uh, the problem is it, it, it we've had too many hurdles and, uh, it's extremely rare that we've seen a successful partnership when the spouse is working either as an office manager, front office, back office, hygiene, whatever. Um, it typically hasn't worked out in the in that type of uh, type of setting. So, anybody's listening has got a spouse in there and wants to entertain bringing someone in, I'd say uh, probably not to do the do it. I wouldn't even do a, a deferred buyout in that scenario. Okay. Well, we're, we haven't uh, put marriage counseling on our uh, schedule of uh, items to address yet, but <laughs> yeah, I can see how that can be an issue. So, well, that's, uh, I'm, I'm sure you could speak a long time on transition options, but let's move on to our next question. And this uh, question is, what do I really know about selling a practice and are my expectations realistic? Well, that's a good question. Another one. Um, what do I know about selling practices? Now, this um, is the dentist. This is this is not the practice broker. This is the practice uh, late career practice owner. 
Well, I'd say for the most case, they probably have, would have limited information unless they've done a lot of research. Uh, listening to this podcast would definitely help them. And there's some good, uh, good information online that they can get and learning more about that process. Um, and as they understand and know more about the process, I think they, that will help define more realist expectations. Um, we, we have seen people who've not done their homework and consequently that created some severe problems with, uh, uh, meeting their expectations. Uh, case in point, you know, which was an option we didn't talk about, some of the sellers out there are considering to sell to corporate America or what we refer to as a DSO, a dental service organization. And even though that looks like a viable alternative for some, it doesn't work out well for some people. And um, many times all we, the grass looks greener on the other side and the DSO acquisitions have a lot of restrictions and control relative to the way they are structured. And those restrictions and responsibilities sometimes create situations where it was, was not appealing like they originally thought. So with that in mind, I think it'd be good for any doctor to define, even before they seek professional advice from a practice broker or a consultant, uh, ask themselves some uh, questions about where they're headed and what they want to accomplish. And then hopefully with the professional guidance, they will give them the how-to part in meeting those objectives. Great. Uh, I remember this past August in 2020, I spoke to a representative for one of the major DSOs in the United States, and they had, oh, it was well over 50 practices in the queue that they needed to close before the end of the year. And, uh, you know, it, it causes me to think that the DSOs have just a little bit more experience in purchasing practices than most individual practice owners have in selling practices. So they are definitely at an extreme disadvantage without some assistance in that project. And, you know, and it goes the same for private practice, uh, docs selling to private practice. They may be great practitioners, but, uh, you know, we don't match up patients to, to treat each other just because they both need dental services. So, um, you know, being uh, having a dental license is not a, a good preparation for all the, the challenges faced when transitioning a practice to new ownership. Uh, how would a practice owner know what what is best for them uh, in making their decisions? I think if they sit down and write down some questions about this, they will lead them, lead them to some good answers. Uh, some questions like, you know, they could ask themselves, am I meeting my real needs, you know, and what information do I need to inform myself of all the options? And then they, and then the second step of after they ask them different questions about relative to their needs and wants and their expectations, they ask, they got to ask stuff, does this decision, you know, show, am I being honest with myself? What would I do? What would I decide if I wasn't afraid or apprehensive about making a change? And do I really want to have another doctor in my practice at this this time? And also questions about can I financially afford to make this transition? Anyway, and then once they, you know, analyze these questions, then they just got to ask themselves the gut question: Does this feel right? And um, 
And if it doesn't, they go, go back to step A and ask them some more questions. And I hope that way they'll hopefully they'll find answers. And sometimes in this process, it's, got, it's good to bounce off some of these questions off an expert uh, consultant that works with transitions so they can help them understand what they what their needs and wants are. Okay. All right. Now, the next question is about timing. How will I know when is the right time for me to sell my practice? Boy, that's a that's a tricky question. <laughs> um, here again, that goes back to what back to some questions you need to ask yourself. What knows the right time? I guess the bottom line is how you feel about where you're at in your career. Uh, you know, can you can you feel good about letting go of the practice? That's a struggle for some of the practitioners out out there. Is just letting go. Um, there's two types that they have a difficult time letting go. The emotional tie, it's, you know, some of them feel very rewarded to continually meet with patients and work, work clinically. And then some, um, some of them uh, would like to let that go, but the finances get involved where they're not sure they can afford to let go. Um, so I see practitioners that would quit, quit, quit tomorrow if they had the financial well, had the financial capacity to do so, but they uh, are not able to do it. And so that's why some of them actually look at the DSO as an option where they can cash in, use some of that money to fund their pension and still work, work back for someone to make some money. But here again, um, when they feel, I think the more questions they write down and ask themselves, uh, particularly we find it's very uh, good activity to write down a lot of questions because as they write a lot of questions about the issues they face, that will lead them down to the answers they're looking for. Good. Uh, as far as timing, we find that a lot of practitioners, uh, as they get older, are running into some health issues. And, and so I guess that would be one limiting factor would be, uh, you know, reduced office hours and, you know, three weeks off here for surgery and recovery and this and that. Uh, uh, that frequently Im impacts the decision-making decision. That's true. I mean, yeah, they have to look at that. Um, the stress of running to practice, health issues, age issues. Uh, some people transition out because they want to relocate somewhere else. I had a practitioner the other day that it, it was his spouse that had some serious problems at being at the elevation that they were at and needed to go to a lower elevation. He had a very successful practice, but sometimes family issues arise where that uh, doesn't mean you cease working clinically, but sometimes you have to uh, transition into another location in order to make things work. And sometimes health issues, like you say, it could be a problem where they have to give up some of the responsibilities of practicing and running the show in order to, take, to address that as well. Yes, I've had several uh, practitioners I've assisted in the last two years that have had health issues prior to closing. In fact, one of them had open heart surgery three or four weeks before the closing and the buyer had to come in as an associate for the last month uh, just to get us to closing. Well, we kind of already addressed the demographic trends uh, when you spoke to uh, schools and the inventory of or the number of uh, young dentists out in the market. Is there anything else you'd like to add to the demographic trends, Larry? There is, there is another issue we didn't address. <clears throat> in the demographic scene, uh, as you mentioned, there are 
there are more dentists coming out than we historically have seen years ago. But there's also a, a trend, or I wouldn't say a trend, what's happening now is most of the dentists prefer to buy practices in uh, fairly large population areas. So um, when they did this analysis, there was an article written 21 years ago in the ADA in 2020, or not 2020, tw year 2000, excuse me, about that there was going to be a shortage of uh, dentists. And so the schools started beefing up the enrollment. And then we've seen a lot more new schools have, have also opened. But where it didn't address is the fact that they're not going to the rural areas as much as I guess they thought they would. Even though those can represent excellent opportunities for new practitioners, most of the practitioners choose to stay in more well-established, or I should say, long, not well-established, but larger populations of usually 50,000 or more. And consequently, that's uh, creating an issue where if a seller lives out in a small rural area and let's say it's four or 5,000 and maybe he's the only dentist or maybe one other, it sometimes takes a considerable amount of time to find someone to willing to move there and take over the practice. And many times they can't find any buyer. Um, it's interesting because they sometimes get focused on what they want out of the practice, but essentially if there's no buyer, there's no market. If there's no market, there's no value. And a lot of times they own their building and I've had practitioners essentially had to throw in the practice just to sell the building. <clears throat> so they got to keep in that mind expectations in a rural area. It takes two to three years and they may or may not even find a buyer and what they get out of the practice won't be similar to what they would see if that same practice was located in a larger, larger city, kind of like real estate, you know, certain areas of the country, a, a half a million dollar house, uh, in a nice suburb, may only sell for 150 to 200,000, same exact same square footage in a rural area. Well, that same philosophy applies to practices. They Sometimes they have to discount just to hold out a big enough carrot to attract the buyer willing to move to that town. Good. Well, our last question on this segment is regarding uh, late career practice owners who are not quite ready to sell and wanted to know what they should do to prepare themselves for a transition in the future? Great question. I think that preparing the, helping prepare the practice uh, can really make a big difference for uh, any potential buyer. Um, that being uh, the revenue, um, we're finding now that, uh, in, that uh, if you have a low grossing, low net revenue practice, those are extremely difficult to sell, primarily because the amount of debt that the buyer has to not only incur for the practice, but particularly what they what they acquired in going through dental school. And uh, if the practices are not are netting under one hundred fifty thousand dollars, even if that practice is in a desirable area in a larger area, larger population area, it's very still difficult to find a buyer. And the reason is it won't address their cash flow needs. So if consequently, if someone has a smaller practice, maybe they could beat, beef that production and collections up so that the revenue can go over 150,000. I'm talking about take home before tax. So that, me that means a practice will probably have to be grossing at least 400,000 plus. Um, mm -hmm. If they're grossing under 300, it'll 
it'll pose to be a difficult sale, even if they're in a desirable area. So uh, the other thing is, is I would accounts receivable. They some people keep those on the books forever. Stuff old stuff that's never been collected. I would purge all that out, get that out of the system. Buyers don't like to see that. Um, I would say all your processes and systems, look at them and make sure that they're up to speed, um, including your software. Uh, healthy new patient flow is is very attractive to a buyer. And also the facility. Sometimes the facility need a facelift. So whether that's reupholstering your chairs or getting new chairs, that you have to look at that because um, that makes a difference in the buyer's perception. Things clean. Uh, sometimes fresh paint works out better clean carpet, new floors, whatever. I'll, I'll, just like a house, you know, if you can fix it up, it shows better and it works better. So both the cosmetic helps as well as the systems and processing. And uh, healthy new patient flow is a good sign. And also, um, like we said, making sure that the revenue is high enough to make it appealing to the average buyer. Great. Larry, that concludes uh, this, this section on considerations for planning the transition of a practice to new ownership. So thanks so much for joining us today for this podcast. Uh, you've uh, been associated with CTC Associates for many years. What states does CTC Associates serve right now? Maybe in the Western, we, we primarily serve Colorado, Utah, uh, New Mexico, and Idaho, and Wyoming. Okay. So if a practice owner was in those areas, uh, they could reach uh, somebody on the CTC Associates team by going on the website and getting the contact information there, I expect. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us, Larry. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye now.